is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And on this day in history in 1913, Green Bay Packers legendary coach Vince Lombardi was born. I'll tell you something, Leroy, you're not going to get your job back unless we get a better performance. Come on, let's beat him up there! Get him out of there, will you? Hey, what about that now? Vince Lombardi was born in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and went on to be the icon of winning and success in America and throughout the world. This is his story, as told by his players, his family, and himself. Our narrator is the unmistakable voice of John Facenda. And why not? The man nicknamed the voice of God could take classic sports footage and make it even more unforgettable. So let's begin. Here's John Facenda. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, 1913. He was born on June 11th in Brooklyn, New York. His godfather was Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons, a legendary racetrack figure who trained three derby winners. When he was eight, he was an altar boy at St. Mark's Church. He wanted to be a priest. Here's Vince's mother, Mrs. Matilda Lombardi. He wanted to be a priest, and all of a sudden, that was off. Lombardi was an all-city fullback at St. Francis Preparatory High School, and then accepted a scholarship to Fordham University in the Bronx to play for the Fordham Rams and their coach, Jim Crowley, one of the four horsemen of Notre Dame in the 1920s. Here's Tim Cohane the former publicity director at Fordham University. Those days, Fordham had a play in which Lombardi is the right guard. Had to block the Pittsburgh left tackle Tony Matizzi, who was 215, 220, an All-American player. Lombardi weighed about 172. And uh, in trying to block Matizzi, or in blocking him, Vince received severe uh, cuts inside his mouth to the extent that he played almost 60 minutes with a mouth full of blood. I think the point in that is that there's nothing that Lombardi has demanded of the Packers that he didn't demand of himself in full measure in his own playing days. In 1937, he graduates cum laude from Fordham. He goes to law school, marries, and is forced to find work. He coaches at St. Cecilia's High School in New Jersey and teaches Latin, physics, and chemistry. In 1947, he returns to Fordham as an assistant coach. In 1949, he goes to West Point as an assistant to Red Blake. Lombardi gave all the credit for his football success to Army's Red Blake and his time at West Point Academy. In 1954, Lombardi became an assistant for the New York Giants, but saw himself as a head coach. For five years, Lombardi searches impatiently for a head coaching position. He's rejected for one reason or another. In February of 1959, he arrives in Green Bay, head coach and general manager of a team that hasn't seen a winning season for 11 disastrous years. A team with no direction, no future, and no morale. Here's Paul Horning. We knew from the outset that he was in command, a take-charge guy, and a guy that you couldn't fool around with. Here's Vince. I didn't come in and have a meeting with the players and say, myself, I wonder what their morale is going to be. I wonder how they're going to accept me. That wasn't what I said to myself. They're going to have to accept me. I'm not worried about their morale. I'm worried about Vince Lombardi's morale here. 
Alone, Lombardi resuscitates a disorganized, depressed, dying team. He force-feeds the Packers with his will to work, his demand for discipline, his relentless drive to win. By summer's end, the Packers are Lombardi. Here is Jerry Kramer. We were graded, of course, every play of every game throughout the year. And uh, on Thursdays, the grades would be posted on the blackboard for every eye to see. And, uh, Get him out of there, will you? Perhaps this was the start of something, instilling some pride in the individuals. Here again is Paul Horning. He's always said that you can't play a football game on Sunday. You have to start playing that football game on Tuesday, the first day of practice. Come on, look at me, 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 look at me. And he's always believed that there's only two things that come before football. That's your religion and your family. There's only one job, and that's football. Here again is Matilda Lombardi. Somebody said he made football players out of some men, and he made men out of some football players. I think he's much more proud of the fact that he made some men out of football players. Here's the great Bart Starr. He tells you that if you give anything less than the best that you have within you at any time, regardless of the, the situation, regardless of the consequences, that uh, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating your teammates, you're cheating professional football, and you're cheating the fans who, uh, uh, who have made the game what it is today for you. But most of all, you're cheating your maker who gave you that God-given talent with which to succeed. Here's Vince. Anybody who has the idea that just to play or just to take part and that's all that's necessary, I think, I think he's in the wrong business. I think he's in the wrong country. One of the things that made America great is to try to be the best in everything that they do. And the best, again, is signified by winning. Here again is Jerry Kramer. I've made the statement at times, his gifted children, and I think he thinks of everyone on the club as a child, or his child particularly. And he drives his gifted people so much harder than he does anyone else. He demands that you use your God-given ability the best you can. Here's Willie Davis. He's a coach that I'm sure that have prepared a lot of us to go out and live in a competitive society. Uh, he taught us a lot of values about life. As head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers, Lombardi led the team to five NFL championships. And like all good things, even the best things, well, this happens. Green Bay Packer football, as all of football, has grown in leaps and in bounds since 1958. The season begins... Take a good, hard look. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers. A winner. To every task, he brought the desire, the dedication, the discipline to succeed. He never coached a losing team. Because of the nature of the business, and because of the growth of the business, and the corporate structure of the Packers, I believe it is impractical for me to try to do both jobs, and I feel I must relinquish one of them. How about regrets? If I had to do things all over again, I, I think I would be very, very... I think I would pray for more patience, maybe, and more understanding. I, I think these are the two areas where I could, uh, I could improve a great deal, and I've been trying to, believe me. And there you have it, the life of Vince Lombardi, born on this day in history in 1913. This is Our American Stories.
She saw both her lives flash before her eyes She didn't even have time to cry She was so scared She threw her hands up in the This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Carrie Underwood's rendition of Jesus Take the Wheel. I know you're wondering why are you calling it a rendition. Well, like, it isn't often the case, and more often the case than not in country music. Sometimes in rock and roll, but often in country music. Someone else writes these songs. And we love to tell the story behind the story of songs anyway here on Our American Stories. We love music. We spend a lot of time on it. Because, well, we all love music. And some of the stories we've done behind the story of a song, Light My Fire, where Ray Manzarek walks us through how that song got made. It's just terrific. Give Me Shelter. You can't believe what brought that song together and made it stick. And another brick in the wall, you hear from Roger Waters himself explaining how that song came together. And then my personal favorite, Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, Wendell Mobley, who wrote the song, tells the story about how that song came to be. We hear the songwriter sing it, and then ultimately, of course, we hear Kenny Chesney's take. And in this particular case, it wasn't Carrie who wrote this. And again, Carrie Underwood, as you all know, was a big star out of American Idol in 2005, and she's gone on to just do such amazing and extraordinary work in every venue, including Broadway Live, which he did on television. She did The Sound of Music, and it was unbelievable. Uh, I think Julie Andrews was like, oh my goodness, that girl can do it. And it was live, which is no duck walk. So this song, Jesus Take the Wheel, was written by a guy named Brett James. And here he is talking about becoming a songwriter, his first guitar, and writing his first song. The very beginning for me started in Waco, Texas. I was a student at Baylor University. Any, any Baylor, I said that. And uh, I'd grown up singing in church and, and being around music. I came from a really musical family, but I didn't play an instrument. I didn't, never thought about writing songs. I'm from Oklahoma, as is Ryan and Randy Grimmett. Any Okies out there? Um, and growing up in Oklahoma, probably like where a lot of you guys are from, you know, becoming a songwriter is not on the list of professions that they give you when you enter high school. And so I didn't know my job existed, and so I didn't know that I could, I could go after it. Um, when I was 19, I asked for a, a guitar for Christmas. My mom bought me an $80 pawn shop guitar. It was a, called a Lincoln. It was a, nobody's probably ever heard, I'd never heard of a Lincoln. The action was about an inch and a half off the strings. I do remember that. <laughs> I then bought immediately uh, John Cougar Mellencamp's Scarecrow songbook because I already knew the album. And I thought, well, I can, most of these songs have three chords in them. I can probably learn these. So that's how I started learning guitar. And for me, the next step in the process was very simple. Uh, as soon as I learned those three chords, for whatever reason, it seemed natural for me to write a song. Um, and that wasn't something I even thought about or planned on. It just, I know these three chords. Why don't I write something that, that 
some girl down the street might like. And uh, so that's how it, that was kind of the beginning for me. And that's how it starts off for so many musicians. Self-taught, we learned this about Irving Berlin, taught himself everything from scratch. Brett talks about when he was a failed recording artist, the time he was, and decided to finally just let go. And it was then that he found eventual success. Sometimes something just pops into your head and, and don't ever, for me, it's like, don't ever count it out, you know? And, and no, no matter how simple you think it might be, sometimes simplicity wins the day. Quick lesson for me might to be, you know, sometimes when you let it go, sometimes when you're not pushing so hard, that's when, that's when kind of God just takes over. I, 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 my story is I was in Nashville, real quickly, uh, I got offered a record deal. My first trip to Nashville with Arista was on Arista for seven years. Seven years later, all that went away. I was a failed recording artist, and I went back to medical school. And I started back to medical school on September 1st, and I was 30 years old and going to go be a doctor. But I was still writing songs. Um, I'd given up my dream of being a songwriter, of being a, you know, I just, that's okay. That, I, I, get, I had a great shot, and, and it wasn't going to work out for me. Uh, September 1st, I started med school. September 4th, Faith Hill co one of my songs on the Breathe album. <laughs> I ended, <Okay>. up, <laughs> ended up with 33 more cuts in that nine months while I was going to med school every day. Yeah. And the reason was because I kind of let go. I'd been in Nashville trying to push and trying to force and trying to fit my, what I did into their square hole, you know, or my round <laughs> songs into their square hole. And, you know, when I went back to med school, I said, screw it. I got a job. You know, I'm going to be a doctor. I can write whatever the heck I want. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write stuff I like. And I sort of let go. And that freedom that he found leaving his dream got him his dream. Go figure. And that happens a lot, too. Here, Brett James talks about writing the song we've been talking about, Jesus Take the Wheel, followed by his performance at an ASCAP songwriter showcase of the first verse and the chorus. You got a blank sheet of paper looking at you, and what are we going to put on it? And, uh... And, you know, so we kind of started tossing around some thoughts, and Gordy said, you know, I got, this, I got one idea for a title. It's called When Jesus Takes the Wheel. And I immediately laughed. I thought, well, that's about the silliest thing I ever heard. And Hillary kind of chuckled, and we kind of tried to get our heads around that for a minute and moved on to something else. What do you think? Well, let's, let's talk about <laughs> some other titles. That one, I'm not sure about that one. But fortunately, uh, 10 or 15 minutes later, we came back to uh, When Jesus Takes the Wheel and uh, wrote a little song about a girl driving to Cincinnati and uh, ended up being called Jesus Take the Wheel. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow-white Christmas Eve. Going home to see her mama and her daddy with her baby in the backseat. Fifty miles to go when she was running low. Faith in gasoline It'd been a long, hard year She had a lot on her mind And she didn't pay attention She was going way too fast Before she knew what she was spinning On a thin black sheet of glass She saw both their lives flash before her eyes She didn't even have time to cry She was so scared She threw her hands up in the air Jesus, take the wheel and take it from my hands Cause I can't do this on my own I'm letting go So give me one more chance And save me from this road I'm on 
Jesus, take the wheel. And that's the first verse in chorus. And my sister's a professional songwriter, and she's always sent me snippets or lines that she wished she'd written. And the one on this one was 50 miles to go, she was running low on faith and gasoline. And those are little descriptors of that character and the thing that person's going through. It wasn't just that she hit a patch of ice. Her life had hit a patch of ice. And that's why she was asking Jesus to take the wheel. Now, you also heard Brett singing, and you could hear clearly why maybe Brett didn't make it as the singer-songwriter. But his God-given talents were in the writing, and my goodness, God-given talents of Carrie Underwood as a singer come to meet these two talents, and here is Carrie Underwood's take on this great song. When she made it to the shoulder and the car came to a stop She cried when she saw that baby in the backseat sleeping like a rock for the first time in a long time She bowed her head to pray She said, I'm sorry for the way I've been living my life I know I've got to change So from now on tonight Jesus, take the wheel is our American stories, Brett James, his story, and the story of how Jesus Take the Wheel came to be, and Carrie Underwood takes us away. American stories and this segment belongs to Jesse we've got two stories from Jesse or two pieces from Jesse and the first is one of our favorites here on the show shower thoughts shower thoughts if fish could scream an afternoon of fishing would be a lot less relaxing I have no problem swallowing saliva while it's in my mouth But once I spit it into a glass, it becomes disgusting to even think about swallowing. Wet towels clean up dry messes, and dry towels clean up wet messes. They should sell Ziploc bags in a Ziploc bag, not a box. 
I correct autocorrect more than it corrects me. The land of milk and honey sounds a lot better than the land of goats and bees. Imagine if men could suffer from preceding hairlines that over time merged with your eyebrows. If a seeing eye dog takes a dump in public, who picks it up? Is the guy who writes the credits at the end of a movie put in the credits? If everything in the universe suddenly doubled in size, we would have no way of knowing. If cannibals were on a strictly human diet, would they be considered humanitarian? Having a high IQ with no people skills is like having a high-powered computer with no internet. When it's a good thing, we nailed it. But when it's a bad thing, we screwed it. Saying the Los Angeles Angels sounds pretty normal. But changing it to all Spanish or all English, and you would say Los Los Angeles Angeles or the the Angels Angels. Why doesn't Spider-Man ever bite anybody? One time I had I'm a Believer stuck in my head and I kept singing it. My friend told me if I didn't stop, she'd never talk to me again. I didn't believe her, but then I saw her face. What if there are ghost birds all over the place, but we just assume that they're regular birds? Shower thoughts. And thank you for that, Jesse. And this is another story Jesse found us at one of his favorite websites, one of ours too, and that's Reason.com, a great place to find out stories about all kinds of things as it relates to your citizenship, your money, and particularly the nanny state. That is the degree to which the government has just started getting more and more involved in our daily lives, particularly as parents. And so this story came from Zach Weissmuller at Reason. And, well, Mike Tang is refusing to reply with a court order and may face more jail time because of it. What's this story about? Let's take a listen. Mike Tang was charged with child endangerment for leaving his eight-year-old son in this parking lot a mile from home. It was supposed to be a life lesson. The night where I dropped him off, I just wanted to reinforce that money is hard to earn and if he doesn't do a good job at school, he could end up you know, doing something like this or sleeping out here where the homeless people sleep. He dropped him not far from the recycling area and walked away. Sometimes there's a guy there, and you see people on bikes. Uh, they look kind of ragged, could be homeless. Mike says his son Isaac had been slacking in school. The last straw was when Mike caught Isaac cutting corners on his homework by reading his little sister's book instead of his own. It's an eight-year-old kid who didn't read his book. Right. Why would you do that? Well, first of all, I've tried other things, right, and they didn't work. So that's my take on it, and I'm trying different things. If this doesn't work, I might try something else next time. About 10 to 15 minutes after dropping Isaac, Mike sent Isaac's grandfather to go pick him up. It was 8 o'clock and getting dark. Turns out Isaac had already been picked up. He was in police custody. A stranger had spotted Isaac and called the cops. He said, why was I walking home? And did I know where my home was? And did you? You know how to walk home from the, the park? Yeah, I know how to walk from, from my school to 
my house. The cops arrested Mike, and he spent the night in county jail. A jury later convicted him, and the judge sentenced him to attend parenting classes and to a 56-day work release program picking up trash. Mike is refusing to serve the sentence, and there's an outstanding warrant for his failure to comply. He scrawled a response on top of the warrant and mailed it back. Walking on a public street, a sidewalk, at 7.45 p.m. is not child endangerment. Is Mike right, or did he jeopardize Isaac's safety? And was it appropriate for the police to intervene? Mike Tang is one of the many American parents who decided to give their kids some independence, in this case as a disciplinary measure, who have their parenting second-guessed by the authorities and find themselves arrested. Journalist Lenore Skenazy is the founder of the Free Range Kids Movement. Walking home a mile on a route that the kid already knew does not rise to the level of danger. It rises to the level of unusual, it rises to the level of perhaps controversial, but it was not literally dangerous. That's not a crime. The state of California says child endangerment occurs when someone willfully causes or permits a child to be placed in a situation where his or her person or health is endangered. Did Mike endanger Isaac? Their hometown of Corona has a remarkably low crime rate, and Isaac knew how to get home and properly use crosswalks. Police and county officials refused to comment for this story, but court transcripts from Mike's trial give us a sense of the arresting officer's thinking. Witness, in my opinion, if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't have left my child there. I have a 20-year-old daughter that I would not let her walk home. If a 20-year-old walking home in a safe town is not safe enough, what is? When we hate the parent for what they're doing, we think they're wrong, we automatically overinflate the danger that we see the kid in. There was a study done at the University of California at Irvine asking people how much danger a kid was in when the parent let the child wait alone in the car. It turns out that the safety of the children wasn't what mattered most to the people surveyed in the study. They were actually passing moral judgment on the parents. So if a mom lets a kid wait in the car because accidentally she was hit by a truck and she was out cold, that's okay. The kid isn't in so much danger. But if she was going to meet her lover and left the kid in the car, oh my God, we think the kid is in way more danger. We are making moral judgments every time we see a kid unsupervised. And the more we hate the parent for leaving the child unsupervised, the more in danger we think the kid is. Maybe this is not the way you would discipline your child, it's not the way I disciplined my kids, but he's trying his best. And to treat parenting like a spectator sport, and if you wouldn't have done it that way and I think that was wrong, nobody thinks that any other parent is raising their kids right. But if you're a cop and you have the power to arrest, and then you're a jury and you have the power to hang, you are giving too much power over an individual's parenting decisions to the state. If I had to do it all over again, you know, I'd do the same thing. Because of his refusal to serve his sentence, Mike faces possible jail time. Uh, if I don't have the freedom to discipline my kid, if they don't even have the freedom to walk outside, I'm already in prison right now. So what does it matter if I go to prison or not? And thanks, Zach Weissmuller, for that piece. And Reason.com is where you can find more like it. 
And I just know my own life, my dad, my mom made the decision to let me and my five buddies get on our little bicycles in northern New Jersey, go across the George Washington Bridge, go to Harlem and play basketball. We left at 7 in the morning and we came back when the sun went down. They'd be in jail right now. I learned my independence. I never got in trouble. And I learned how to play a damn good game of basketball. This is Lee Habib, Mike Tang's story, here on Our American Stories Than Any State. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite regular segments, Life Lessons, from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, On Men and Women. People often uh, wonder, has success changed your life? And yes, it's changed the way I live. I live in a much bigger house than I would, would have lived in, and I have uh, more fast cars, good-looking cars and everything, and a big wardrobe. Nah, I wouldn't say a big wardrobe. I have a lot of, a lot of clothes, not like my wife. I don't spend a lot of money on clothes, and that's what I'm going to get at. In some ways, it changes your life, money, but in other ways, it doesn't change who you are and how you view things. Although, uh, you know, I'm very comfortable, I still buy used books on Amazon, okay? Why should I pay less price? I don't need new. You know, some things you need new. You're not going to buy used socks or used underwear, okay? That's for sure. You're going to buy that new. But when it comes to a book, the fact that somebody read it doesn't doesn't change it, okay? So my wife still drives, and my kids, why are you buying a used book? It'll come in with some pages bent. The words are still there. So, So it's a funny thing about life that I still look for value. I don't want to overpay. Now, that's not true about my wife. <laughs> women, and I'll tell this, this is a funny story about men versus women. And this is very important, matter of fact. I think there should be a course in high school, a required course in high school and in college about how men and women are different. 
and they should have a woman talk about their view of men and their view of women, and then they should have me come in and talk about my view of men and talk about what men are and, what, and how we view women. They're so different. Now, again, I'm not saying that you can't, uh, that a woman can't be a, the chief scientist or can't be a football player. Whatever you want to do, you can do, okay? If, if you can be good at it. But the way that men and women, in general, okay, I'm generalizing, but you know what? Generalizations are generally true. That's the point of a generalization. So generally, men and women are very, very different. Think differently. And it's so important to learn this early on because that's the source of conflict between men and women because they don't get it. Nobody ever told them how different men are than women and how their brains are wired differently and how they think differently. In some ways better, men are better in some ways and women are better in some ways, but it's, that doesn't matter. It's all different. And here's a great story about it. I took my wife on a cruise and I was surprised. I actually liked the cruise. But cruises have little boutiques on them, you know, or out to sea, and what, you know, the, the cruise company takes advantage. What are you gonna do? You're gonna spend money. You got, you know, especially the women, they go shopping, okay? So we went to the jewelry store. It's about three days before the cruise ended, and we're, we're walking around. We look, go to the jewelry store, and oh, my wife found a watch. Oh, that's nice. Can I try that on? She tried it on, and I saw her a watch. And it was the Casio watch, it turns out. And I, and I tried it. I said, oh, that's a nice watch, too, because most of my watches were thin. You see, 20 years ago, thin was in. Thin watches. You know, see how thin you can make a watch. Now, that does take a lot of skill to pack it all like, like an iPhone. Thinner is better. All of a sudden, watches, it got to be a big Ben here. You got to be wearing an alarm friggin' clock on your arm for, you know, so, so you can see it. I don't know why, but big is it. So I was looking at a bigger watch, and my wife found this watch. My wife's watch was about $800, and the men's watch was about $600, $800. Okay, we can afford that. I mean, cruises are not cheap. Okay, you can afford that. But we said, you know, on any purchase, other than food, I'm going to say, well, let's think about it. Let's think about it. So two days later, which is one day before the cruise ends, big sign, sale, 50% off. Well, of course, because the customers are leaving. These customers you're never going to see again. And there's no shortage of these watches, okay? They come off an assembly line, and they're still going to make money at 50% off. So better make something from these people, and then we'll put new watches up there in the next group. So now her watch, instead of 800, was 400. And my watch, instead of 600, was 300. Unbelievable. My wife says, oh, Mao, that's her nickname. Oh, I like this watch. It looks great. I'm happy with my watch. I said, you know what? Let me check on the internet. Let me check on the internet. Her watch, list price on the internet, wasn't 800, wasn't 400, 175. My watch wasn't 600, it wasn't 300, it was 250, shipped to your house. Now, that's a story about watches but, and, and a story about a cruise. But wait, where's the whole thing is about difference between men and women. How did my wife react? I don't want that watch. I don't want that watch. She loved it. Three days ago, she loved it. She tried it on 15 times, loved that watch. But now, it wasn't an $800 watch anymore. It was 170 I don't want that watch, it's crap. That's how a woman reacts. Me, I liked it at 
600, I liked it more at 300, and I bought it at 275. <laughs> so guys are happy. They find something they like, it's cheaper, it's better. It's a better deal. Women, they find something they like, oh, it's cheaper? No way. I don't want it! <laughs> Men and women are very, very different. And that's a fantastic story. And I think it applies, you know, just about 90% of the time to men and women. Shopping. Shopping. Guys generally don't like to shop, okay? You know, there are cartoons on the internet. Uh, you just, just go on to Google Images and say men versus women. You'll see these. There's one that uh, I recall. It, it's a bird's eye view of a mall. It's a drawing of a mall. And then it says underneath that, guy shopping for a pair of jeans. It shows a red line from the parking lot to the jeans store and out, right? Under that, woman shopping for a pair of jeans. Red line goes in every store and leaves without the jeans. Buys something else. And that, I think, is another example of men versus women. Men are very goal-oriented. They need something. I need a pair of pliers. I go to Home Depot. I buy the pliers and I leave. A woman needs nylons. She goes to the mall, goes in every friggin' store, buys something, and doesn't come home with a nylon. So, you know, it's, it's a riot, but it's important. And it's important that people understand that difference before they get married. Before they get married. And a lot of times, women, women's way of looking at things is right. When, when we moved to California, we were looking for property. And uh, we had sort of an unlimited budget. And, you know, that makes it harder. When you have a limited budget, there are a limited number of homes to look at, and you've got to pick one. When you have an unlimited budget, it took us a year, okay? So we finally found a home, a uh, very nice house uh, in Rancho Santa Fe. It was uh, $8 million, beautiful home, beautiful home. And uh, actually signed a P&S on it uh, to buy it. And then we found this home, which is considerably more, more than double. And uh, as an engineer, I put together a spreadsheet and I compared price per foot and operating costs and everything. In the house that we're in now, I said, well, this doesn't make it. It's over, overpriced. Oh, it's, it's overpriced for what you're getting, right? This house, the $8 million, perfectly good. We loved it until, I loved it until my wife found this house and then hard to compare. So I was studying these spreadsheets and I was trying to explain it to my wife on an analytic basis of value and cost projections and whatever. And you know, she's not a scientist, she's an artist. And uh, she said, well, I don't understand all that, but let me ask you two questions. Can we afford this house, the one that's double? I said, yes. And do you like this house? And I said, of course, who could not like this house? It's a work of art, a work of art. And she said, well, my rule is, if you like it and you can afford it, you buy it. Which I never thought of that way. You know, I, I thought of if you like it and can afford it and it's fair and this and that and the maintenance, then you buy it. Too complicated. I decided she was right at this stage in life. Now, at an earlier stage in life, when you're building your career, that's wrong. Just because you can afford it doesn't mean you should buy it, okay? It, it should have value to it, all right? You don't want to overpay at that stage. But at this stage of my life, I decided that a woman's perspective was the right way to think about it, and I'm happy we did because it's a fantastic house, and forget the spreadsheets, forget the spreadsheets. So sometimes 
it's worth overpaying. It's worth overpaying. And it didn't hurt me to overpay because I enjoy it to that degree. And there you go. Another life lesson from Dr. Bob. And my wife and I have a similar story. I was Mr. Spreadsheet with a new house and she just said, can we afford it? And that's like, gulp. Yeah, we can. And Mr. Cheapskate got overruled by a family that was pretty smart and and we love our house and I love my house. But if it had been my way, we would have just not done it. Dr. Bob's story, his life lessons. Here are now American stories. This is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything. And periodically, we tell stories about sports. But as you've come to know, they're not just sports stories, any more than those great stories on ESPN, those 30 for 30 stories, or sports stories. We're going to spend an hour talking about Coach Dean Smith of the University of North Carolina. He passed in 2015, but we are here to remind people of the virtues of this man and stories about this man. If you aren't a coach, you'll still want to listen. If you run a business, if you run a family, if you have any influence at all in your life with other people, you're going to want to learn from the very best about how to lead. And that's what Dean Smith was. He was a leader, he was a teacher, and of course, he was a coach. His basketball bloodlines ran as deep as the Carolina blue sky. His coach at the University of Kansas, Fog Allen, learned the game from the man who invented it and after whom basketball's Hall of Fame is named, James Naismith. Winning was also in Dean Smith's bloodline. Under Coach Allen, he was a backup guard on the Kansas team that won the 1952 NCAA title, and he was runner-up the following year. He scored only one point in those two championship games, but it was from the bench sitting near his coach that a sports giant was birthed. He would go on to mentor two of the next generation's great coaches, fellow Hall of Famers Larry Brown and Roy Williams. Great coaching apples, it turns out. Don't fall far from great coaching trees. Dean Smith was born in Emporia, Kansas in 1931. His dad was a teacher and a high school basketball coach. His mom was a teacher too, but it was from his dad that he learned the value of every human being and their potential. Kansas was a highly segregated state at the time, but that didn't stop his dad from putting a black player, Paul Terry, on his team. In the 1933-34 state tournament, Terry was banned from playing by state officials. Rather than hamper that team's performance, it spurred them on. They ended up winning the state title. When Smith was 15, his family moved to Topeka, where he played basketball, football, and baseball in high school and earned an academic scholarship to the University of Kansas. He would go on to coach briefly at Kansas and at the Air Force. And then came the big shot at North Carolina, he was replacing the legendary Frank McGuire, who had led a team to a 32-0 season and an NCAA championship not long before. Things didn't go very well the first year. Here's one of his players on one of the early teams, legendary NBA player and great college player, Billy Cunningham. 
To say it was difficult times for him is an understatement. He was being hung in effigy. Uh, the coaches, everyone was questioning his coaching ability, what he was doing. Alumni, students, wasn't very many good things. Matter of fact, I found something from the old Daily Tar Heel of January 13, 1965, and I just took a little portion of it out. It's a quote. Yeah, I know Dean has a big job to do, and if he can't keep up with the traditions of the fine Carolina teams, he should start looking for, a smaller, for smaller shoes to fill. And the bottom says, name withheld. I hope he's here tonight. <laughs> and those were tough years for Coach. And Billy Cunningham continues on Dean Smith's early years. You know, they say you learn more from losing than winning. Well, we made sure he got enough of that. And, and uh, one of the things, though, we taught him is humility, number one. How could you be a cocky, wise guy coaching teams that were 8 and 9, 12 and 12, you know, didn't make it through the ACC tournament, didn't do, really didn't do very much of anything. So humility, we got that covered for him. <laughs> Loyalty. It was only the players in his immediate family that would talk to him. I mean, no one had anything to coach Smith. They were, all they wanted to do was get someone new in. You know, coaching and recruiting, which it come down to, and you saw that there, is that he learned that either he changed the style and started coaching in the proper way and went out and got some decent players because he surely was tired of watching us. And then that's when things started, and obviously he went on to become, if not the greatest, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And by the way, Billy Cunningham was speaking before he sold out Dean Smith Center at the University of North Carolina. This was just days after he died. All the players came back, all the people who knew him, and all the kids. The place was just packed. And we're bringing you parts of these speeches to celebrate this great man's life. Up next was retired president of Converse Sneakers, Mickey Bell, who happened to be graduating, who happened to be a graduate of the class in 1975, and who said Dean would have hated all of this attention. As I look out over this huge crowd, I can't help but think how Coach Smith would absolutely hate this. As you know, he did not like to be center of attention. He did not want to um, um, be in the spotlight. He was a very humble man, and he would never accept or really understand why people came from all over the country and all over the state to be here to honor him. Yet if anybody deserved a celebration, it was Coach Smith. And Mickey Bell then asked the question rhetorically to the crowd, why me? Why am I speaking? When Coach Williams called me last week he and asked, said that he and the family wanted me to speak, I had the same thought that you did when you saw the list of speakers today. Why Mickey Bell? <laughs> For you see, I was not an All-American. I didn't play in the NBA. My jersey is up there, my number, up in the rafters, but some guy named O'Corn came up and put his name on it. <laughs> Besides, when you look at the other speakers here today, they're all legends. Antoine Jameson, Phil Ford, Eric Montrose. I said, Coach, didn't you want another star to speak here today? And Roy reminded me that Coach Smith gave equal equal treatment to every player. 
from a walk-on to a superstar. Yes, said, yes, Roy said, all the speakers achieve great basketball uh, uh, accomplishments. But everyone thought it'd be great to have someone on the other end of the spectrum to make a presentation. <laughs> so I said to Roy, let me get this straight. What you really are saying, you want a player to speak that had limited talent, limited scoring ability, was slow, couldn't really jump, played a little, and contributed some. Is that right? And Roy said, yes. And I said, well, I'm your man. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Mickey Bell, from Phil Ford, from so many of his great players, and the aforementioned Roy Williams. You're hearing his name a lot. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life of Dean Smith here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the life of Dean Smith. We're celebrating his life, and we're hearing from so many of the people who knew him, from great players to not-so-great players, as you're about to hear from Mickey Bell, who continues to talk about all the debts of gratitude he owed this great coach. Besides, how could I say no? Coach Smith never said no to any of requests I ever made from him. Well, I'll take that back. When I was a senior... I went up to Coach Smith and I said, Coach, when we go in the four corners, do you think I should be the one in the middle of the four corners handling the ball instead of Phil Ford? <laughs> and I remember his answer. He just said, no. <laughs> like you over last week, I have been reading and listening to all the tributes to Coach Smith. They have made me smile. They have made me reflect. And yes, that made me cry. But I'm so pleased that through these tributes, Coach Smith is now understood by everyone around the world of how great he was. Over the years, my friends who never met Coach sometimes would come up to me and say, Mickey, was he that good? What was so special about him? And that really is an impossible thing to answer completely. For how do I explain that yes, he was a great coach, but he was even a better person. How do I explain to someone that life, his life was guided by principles and he never ever wavered from them? Yes, we all have things we believe in, but how many of you can say that you never waver from them? How do you explain to someone how he made all that played for him a man? Someone who challenged us every day to get better on the court and off the court. He coached you to be a better basketball player for four years. He coached you to be a man for a lifetime. How do I explain to someone all the life lessons he taught us while we were here? Lessons like the power of his positive words. He was the most positive man I ever met. He was always encouraging you. Now, he could get mad, uh, I think all the players here knew that when that whistle blew hard, he clapped his hands together and said, get on the line, we'll get something accomplished today. We were in trouble. But he was all, always positive. It was always when we make the free throw, not if we make the free throw. 
when we steal the ball versus if we steal the ball. The glass to Coach Smith was always half full. How do I explain to someone that everything he did was with dignity and class? He never talked about winning, only improving. He never embarrassed a player. He was both a humbled winner and a gracious loser. He never uttered a single cuss word while I was at Carolina. And believe me, my play deserved a couple of cuss words. <laughs> How do I explain to someone the lesson of loyalty? You saw that every year during senior day. No matter the opponent, no matter how highly ranked they were, or no matter how important the game was, the seniors were going to start. His principle of loyalty far exceeded his goal of winning. How do I explain to someone the lesson that little things do matter? Did you fully touch the line in sprints? Did you help your teammate up once he dove on the floor? Are you on time? I look at every player right here that played for him. They're all nodding their heads because we knew that on time the Coach Smith meant five minutes early. And his lesson there was that there was no shortcuts in the game, just like there's no shortcuts in life. He always said little things equate to huge success. How do I explain the lessons of preparation leads to calmness? Duke game down eight, 17 seconds. All these stories you've heard were true. I was in the huddle. I'm leaning over his left shoulder. He says, we're in great shape. We got them right where we want them. Isn't this fun? Because you see, we had prepared or practiced so much for late game situations. He was totally calm and positive. His calmness against adversity is something I try to do even today. How do I explain the life lessons that family and friends are the most important? There's a special bond among all the Carolina basketball family. We might be generations apart, yet we know we were part of something very special, and we have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. Other, sc other schools have tried to emulate what Coach Smith created, but there is only one Carolina. <clears throat> when my son was born, I received a handwritten note congratulating me on the birth of my son, Michael. Now, I'd been out of school for many, many years. I didn't call him. I didn't tell him the name of my son. Yet he took the time out to write me a note congratulating me on his birth. And when I marveled at this later when I saw him, his response was, Mickey, that's what friends do. Wow. It is well documented how Coach Smith's innovations impacted the game of basketball. The four corners, secondary break, have all been adopted by coaches both here and abroad. One of his innovations transcended basketball. It's now seen in all team sports. That, that innovation is pointing at your teammate after a great play. You saw it on a key play in the recent Super Bowl. Tom Brady throws a pass to the receiver, the receiver jumps up, points back at Brady, and Brady points back at him. It was Coach Smith's way of thanking the player that had just made the pass. Because to Coach Smith, it was all about team and teammate. Just think, that simple gesture epitomized what Coach Smith was all about. If he was here today, as Billy said, he would really not like this 
uh, praise on him. He would be up here pointing at people. He would say, thank you, players. He would say, thank you, Coach Guthridge. He would say, thank you, students. He would say, thank you, Roy Williams. And I think all of us should thank Roy Williams for keeping the values that Coach Smith created ongoing here in Chapel Hill. And that point to a pastor was the biggest deal. No one had ever seen it before. Guys pointing at each other and giving each other credit immediately and spontaneously on a court. People copied the North Carolina way, but it was the North Carolina way. Mickey Bell went on to thank his coach in these final words. For 40 years, every time I saw a coach, he would always say, thank you. And I'm not sure what he thought me, was thanking me for, but today I want to thank him. I want to thank him for giving a guy with limited t- talent, remember the guy that couldn't jump, couldn't shoot, couldn't run, a chance to be part of the basketball family. Thank you, Coach. Thank you. And in closing, if your friends, if your friends come up to you, if your children, or even if your grandchildren come up and ever ask you, what was Coach Smith like? Simply reply, he was the best. Thank you. And then came up Phil Ford, one of the greatest point guards in college history, ended up coaching at North Carolina, and he started things off with a funny story. It must have been my second or third game, my first year as an assistant coach here back on the staff. And the first two games, I didn't say anything. You know, I was really nervous. I was in awe, you know. But this particular game, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coach this game. I'm going to help out. So, you know, J.R. was playing. And we'd come down court. We'd change sides of the court with the ball, like we were taught to do, make three or four passes, throw it into JR. JR would kick it out. He'd get a little deeper. We'd kick it back into him. He'd miss a one-foot jump hook. The other team would come down the court, make one pass, guy shoot a three-point shot, and we got a hand in the face. And it went in. So this happened three or four times down the court. And I say, I'm going to coach a little bit right now. I say, hey, coach, you think we ought to call a timeout? He looks at me with a straight face and says, what are we going to tell them? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're getting the shots we want to get. They're taking the shots we want them to take. That was my first lesson in coaching right there, I'm telling you. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of these talks. And wait till you hear Roy Williams. It's just worth it's it's worth the wait, folks. And by the way, Phil Ford, when he was recruited by Dean Smith, said this in an article right after his death. My mom, when she first met him, thought he was the dean of the school. That's the way Mr. Smith carried himself, like the dean of an academic program. And that more than 95% of his players graduated is a record that would make any college dean proud. When we come back, more on the life of Coach Dean Smith, his story, his players' stories, North Carolina's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Coach Dean Smith. And you're going to be hearing more from Phil Ford, other players, and of course, Coach Roy Williams. What a speech he gives. It's worth the wait. And all of this happened at the Dean Dome, as it's affectionately called, on the bucolic, beautiful campus at the University of North Carolina, where Coach Smith taught young men how to be grown men for decades. Phil Ford, by the way, before we go to another clip and his talk, He said this about Coach Smith. He was about the only coach who told me I was not going to start. But my mom sat me down and explained to me that when I was a senior, I could then be assured that Coach Smith wouldn't be promising another high school All-America my starting spot when he was a freshman. And I would never have thought about it that way. Right there and then, Coach Smith was teaching me how to be a man and how to think like one. Back to Phil Ford's speech. And he starts to get emotional right about here. Because of my Christian belief, I I do believe that Coach is in a better place right now, uh, especially seeing how he was the last couple years. But the human side of me, you know, I still want to go by his office. I would go by his home with Mrs. Smith and and his office with Brent and Miss Woods, and they would make him smile and you know, I, I still want to have lunch with him, and I still want to push him out to his van, but uh, I do know one day that I'll see him, and I'm really going to miss him. And if there's a model of how we should live our lives, I mean, we need no, look no further than coach's life because I'm honored, I'm truly honored to have been, to have played for and been an assistant coach to the greatest coach ever. Not basketball, the greatest coach. I'm going to miss you, coach. And next up, and by the way, you're seeing every race and ethnicity, every speech style, every religious type. Up comes this gigantic, tall, skinny, white kid, seven feet tall, outstanding UNC player, Eric Montross. And these are the words that came to his mind about coach. Humility. Conviction, dedication, compassion, loyalty, bravery, and love are a few words which I now know describe Coach Smith. But in 1988, I knew Coach Smith only as a winning coach. When my high school basketball coach said to me, would you be interested in hearing from the University of North Carolina and Dean Smith, my answer was yes. Later that summer, I pulled my truck to a stop in front of the open doors of our gymnasium, and one of my teammates ran out of the gym into the parking lot, and he said, you'll never believe who's here to watch you play in a pickup game. It's Dean Smith and he's sitting in a rickety old plastic chair in the back corner. You see, even in Indiana, a state with their own legendary coach and Bob Knight, Coach Smith evoked emotion and respect. My father remembers early in my recruitment wanting to learn more about Coach Smith, so he and I began to read the book, The Carolina Corporation. It was then that we began to see a sketch 
of what would later become a deep understanding of Carolina basketball under head coach Dean Smith. In the fall of 1992, I sat with my Tar Heel teammates, many of whom are here today, in the locker room just back here. And we were setting goals for the upcoming season. We came to an agreement at the end of that meeting that our goal would be to end the season in New Orleans. The next day in our locker, and you guys remember this, was an 8 by 10 picture taped in the corner of our mirrors where it stayed all season long. The image in that picture was of the scoreboard inside the New Orleans Superdome. And it said, the University of North Carolina, 1993 national champions. The famed poet Robert Frost said, the afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. Upon Coach Smith's passing, ESPN's Marty Smith used that quote to describe Coach Smith as the afternoon. And so many others, including his opposing coaches, the morning. Coach Smith has had a profound effect on our lives. For many of us and for many of you, the first thing we think of is a magical comeback, a championship, or a victory over a rival. But more impressive than those on-court achievements is the indelible mark he has left upon society. As a respected leader in the community, he stood tall for what he knew was right and garnered respect because of it. He's long been lauded for his efforts, but was shy to receive this attention because to him, it seemed like the only morally correct stance to take. And however great his passion was towards the game that he loved, it was displayed tenfold to us as his players. He brought the fight for desegregation to college sports and used the game of basketball as a vehicle to carry the message, a faith-based message of humanity onto a national stage. Coach Smith delivered this message publicly, but his message was not for show. He administered it to us as players as well. He mandated that unless he had a letter from our parents excusing us that we be in a place of worship once a week. He encouraged us to find something we were passionate about outside of the game of basketball and to share the same dedication we had for our sport with that cause. There was a recognition that basketball was not what should wholly define our lives. And for many of us, that way of thinking has been embraced. Dr. Martin Luther King said, Jr. said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Among many of the off-court experiences designed to give us a broader sense of appreciation for the opportunities we had was a trip to Butner Prison, where we practiced in front of some of the most forgotten individuals in our society. 
Numerous trips to children's hospitals also brought us face to face with the very spirit that made our sport so popular and increased our awareness that the world was not made up entirely of individuals as fortunate as we were. A familiar thought for the day used by Coach Smith is the serenity prayer from theologian and fellow Medal of Freedom winner Reinhold Niebuhr. It reads, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Leaders are unique in how they convey their beliefs. Coach Smith, he led with courage and wisdom and by example, giving all of us the opportunity to focus the lens through which we looked at life. You're not going to hear many NBA and college athletes sound like that, folks, and that's coming straight from a father figure and coach named Dean Smith. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Coach Roy Williams. And by the way, Smith won the Medal of Freedom in 2013, and not many coaches win that kind of an award. The man who brought up so many young men and turned them into men the legend, the coach, the man, Dean Smith's story, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, the final segment in this hour-long celebration of one of the great men, one of the great coaches, one of the great teachers in American life. And we love to celebrate teachers, and the best coaches are just that. Listen to our Bear Bryant Hour, our Vince Lombardi Hour. They're startling. And what you can learn as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, as a school leader, as a church leader, well, it's all there, folks. Listen to the way these young men talk. 30, 40 years after playing for them, it's as if it was yesterday. And they still maintain relationships. By the way, Michael Jordan said this, Other than my parents, no one had a bigger influence on my life than him. He was more than a coach. He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was my second father. And by the way, this man racked up 879 wins, a 776 winning percentage, 17 ACC championships. And boy, that's tough. That is the tough basketball conference. And of course, two national championships. But here's why he's really remembered. It ain't the wins, folks. And now, the man who played as a JV player for Coach Smith went to Kansas, then came back to North Carolina, current coach Roy Williams. If you ever hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Dean said this, you know it's a lie. Because I've never referred to him anything other than Coach Smith. If you hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Bill Guthridge, that Bill did this, that's a lie too because he's always been Coach Guthridge. And Coach Smith used to say, he'd call and he'd say, Coach Williams, Dean Smith. I said, Coach, how you doing? Right. 
we're partners playing some good golf matches, and I'd always call him coach, and he'd say, you can call me Dean. I said, no, sir, I can't, and I never have. No, sir, I can't. Here's Roy Williams talking about something that startled him as a young player, and it had to do with where Coach Smith took his players to practice. I even dreamed of Coach Smith last night. Gospel truth. I hope I never hit another golf ball if that's a lie. So Coach knows I'm telling the truth. But some of the things about Coach Smith and one thing I thought of when it was said something about Coach taking him to Butner and practicing. It's one of the times I disagreed with Coach Smith. He took one of the teams when I was here to the state prison, maximum security prison. Everybody there had at least two life sentences. And they closed that door, that gate, and it is a scary feeling. And we're in there and we're doing a little clinic and everybody's having a good time. And Coach says, well, let's scrimmage those guys. Okay. And he looks at me and he says, Coach, you referee. Now, there's some players here that remember that. I said, Coach, you think I'm calling a foul on one of those guys? You are crazy. And that was the truth. I didn't call a single foul. And not a lot of coaches are taking their boys to prisons to scrimmage, folks. Dean was always teaching. Roy Williams says here, with Dean Smith, with Coach Smith, the players were always first. The other thing I remembered last night about Coach Smith is he always wanted to make sure that you guys knew you were first, more important than anybody else. And I've tried to do that for 27 years as a head coach. One day, I was talking to a player, and I have a rule when a player's in the office, nobody interrupts. And if somebody calls, I don't take the call. And Jennifer Holbrook, who's sitting over here, was my secretary at that time. I've got a player in the office, and she opened the door and stuck her head in, and I looked, and I said, what? Because you just don't do that. And she said, former President Bush is on the phone. I said, would you please tell him we'll call him back? True story. So when the player and myself, when we were finished and the player left, I walked out and I said, was that really President Bush or somebody like Mickey Bell? You know. <laughs> and she said, no, the Secret Service called first. And I said, we'll see if you can get him on the line. And so she got him on the line and I talked to him and he wanted to see if he could get two tickets to the next game. Swear to goodness. So two or three years ago, the Final Four was in Houston, and they honored President Bush. And Jimmy Nance was the MC, and Jimmy got up and told that story about Coach Roy Williams wouldn't even take his call. <laughs> and President Bush got up and said, the conversation I had with Coach Williams was fantastic because he said his players were more important than anybody. And that came from Coach Smith. And here's Roy Williams talking about the encouraging ethos that Smith drove 
at North Carolina. I would like to encourage all of you to tell people what they mean to you. At the private service with the family and the letterman, I told them a story that I had never told Coach Smith that I loved him. And I've regretted that. And I've told my players, encourage them to tell people that mean really mean something to you, tell them how much they mean to you. Coach Smith knew what he meant to me. I tried to give him a great deal of credit because I told the truth. Everything that I did, I got from him. Now, yesterday, I didn't guard the four corners quite as well as he would have wanted me to. And I look out, and I think Coach Larry Brown, who was one of the first guys to run the four corners, up here is Phil Ford, the best ever, Kenny Smith, Dick Grubar. I tried to give him credit every time I did anything, but I never really told him what he meant. So my players are sitting back there at the back, and they know this is the truth. We should all spend time telling people what they truly mean to us. I had a coach one time that said, if you coach a guy 30 years later, and I'm from the South, so a guy means go boy or girly the one, so it makes no difference. But if you coach someone that 30 years later, you can still see something that you gave him and to really make sure it's something positive. Every day our lives will show something that Coach Smith gave us. The way we treat people, the way we treat people with respect and dignity, and the way we care, because that's what Coach Smith did. And here's Roy Williams closing things out. We're very fortunate to be here together in a wonderful, wonderful family. The Smith family, I thank you. We love you. Trying to speak on behalf of every one of us. Everybody has negatives. Everybody has pluses. Coach Smith had more pluses than anybody I've ever known. Let's raise our hand and point and thank him for the assist. Thank you. And again, we're at the Dean Dome. We're taking you there. And this was last year, but we'll play this every year because great teaching is great teaching and it's eternal. These themes last forever. Up last, to close out the ceremonies, Dean Smith's pastor, who he was very close to, and that's Reverend Robert Seymour. And he closed out everything with these words. What a wonderful tribute to have this huge crowd here today to honor his memory. But Dean was an extraordinarily humble man. He was known for his humility and giving other people the thanks and attention. And if he could have anticipated this gathering today, I think there's a good chance he might have said, don't do it. 
But this gathering was not for Dean. This gathering was for us. And it's so true. And by the way, the Reverend then went on to read a little poem that was absolutely beautiful. And I wanted to share one last story that I know about Dean Smith. And it came from a conversation I'd had with a friend. It turns out a country club had been courting Coach Smith. And Coach Smith was very close to John Thompson, who happened to be black. This was in the 1980s. And Dean Smith had a question for that country club. Can I bring Coach Thompson? And they said, well, no. African-Americans aren't allowed to play at this club. And they go, so then with all due respect, I ain't about to join. And he said, and that was the nature and character of Dean Smith. And this was the premier club where all the connected folks were, all the donors were. And he was teaching then, not too long after that club desegregated. His word got out that Dean wasn't going to play there. Always leading, always teaching, trying always to do the right thing. Not a perfect man, no one is. But my goodness, Dean Smith's life, celebrated at the Dean Dome, we'll do it every year here. His story, all of his boys' story, in a sense, Chapel Hill's story while he was there, here on Our American Stories. <laughs>